Well, welcome back, listeners, to our wonderful three-part series on Sabbatai Svi. Once again, we are joined by, with, to, for, what's the correct? From? We're in conjunction. <laughs> Samuel Biagetti, historian extraordinaire. He joins us to discuss, with Hava and myself, the spiritual implications of the history that we discussed. We'll be droshing some of that history, throwing in some other ideas that just come from our minds. Yeah, we'll be making <laughs> shit up. We'll be making shit up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's going to be a lot of fun. So we should just go around and ask uh, how everyone is. Yeah, let's ask Samuel. Samuel's the guest. Samuel, you're the guest. Samuel. Hi. Hi, how are you? I'm okay. I have a little bit of a headache. But I took a, a Pirin tablet, so I think I'm fine. How are you? I'm well, Baruch Hashem. I just ate um, a bowl of Italian garden vegetable soup that I made, which was really good. Oh. While you all were setting up, I made the Shabbatai meme that I was talking about with Michael earlier. So that's good. <laughs> Memes live from the studio. Yeah, I'm well. I'm really excited to record this episode. Shabbatai has been a long time personal um i'm gonna say fetish of mine but we'll we'll get into that later michael it's your turn in this round table hi how are you i feel pretty good you know wow i was hanging out with grunge girl Mm -hmm. and she told me i need to uh cry and mourn my breakup oh which breakup <laughs> yeah. This is sort of Kabbalistic, the perpetual breakup. <laughs> right. We're in a constant state of breakup. Yeah, that's true. The shattering of the vessels. Yes. Uh yeah, okay, so I'm a shattered vessel. That's about it. I think we should jump into it. Yeah, we should jump into it. I wanna start off by saying I enjoyed your episode together so much. It was very informative, very easy to listen to. I my have to say the thing that I most did not know about before I heard that episode was about I can't remember his name, but whoever was the military messiah who had a fight with Shabbatai, I had not heard about that conflict before. Yeah, Nehemiah, that was really interesting where I was going through the book and it's very it's very interesting because of the events, but it's very long and very dense. You know, he piles in all these documents and all these references. And then he says, and then this fellow Nehemiah showed up. And that's the point where like my ears perked up and I was like, ooh, this is where the <laughs> drama is really coming in. That's where it sort of became a page turner when it got to that part. And it is it is high drama. Yeah, it was really high drama. You were bringing most of your information from Sholem's book, right? Yeah, I mean, that's by far the most comprehensive book on the whole movement and the whole event. I mean, just by leaps and bounds. There has been some more work on it in, you know, the past 30 years, which kind of puts it in some more context. But still, it's like, that's really where you're going to get your information. And it's this big fat tome. And it's hard to find out anything good or informative about Sabatai from any other source. Yeah, I'm going to be bringing some things in this episode today from a book that I really like that I have here, Shabbatian Heresy by Pavel Machenko. It's just like this little book and it's all primary sources. And he sort of views himself as, I don't want to say counter Sholem, but sort of like fixing some things that he thinks are wrong with Sholem's analysis. And it's a really interesting little book. Cool. 
Cool. Here's how I want to start off with, because this is a question that haunts me as a Shabbatian, you know, as a, a <laughs> what would we call it? Like a post-Shabbatian? Or a fellow like a, traveler. <laughs> yeah, exactly. As a fellow traveler on the Shabbatian highway, why do you all think, and this is something that I've experienced, is that even people who are the most sort of radical or progressive in their Judaism, when the subject of Shabbatai comes up, they immediately convert to being as conservative as, you know, the most conservative element of Judaism. Somehow it's one of those subjects where there's just a really big exception to the rule of challenging the norms of Judaism. Why Why do you all think Shabbatai is special in that way? Yeah, that's a really good question. I'm sure we both have thoughts about that. Oh, definitely. I have thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> I have thoughts. <laughs> It's really hard. This is all psychological. It's all conjecture. One of the things that I like to do is imagine scenarios that are just slightly different from the ones that we currently live in. Like, what if Judaism was as big and popular and widespread as Christianity? Mm -hmm. Would our reaction to learning about Sabbatai, or even the existence of a 20th century Sabbatean movement, would it cause the same emotions to arise inside of us? Maybe, I think the answer might be no. Mm -hmm. I think there's something about the reaction that is not really based in theological differences and debate, but might be based in just feeling threatened in general. Right. Something that really mm -hmm. gets me about this specific interaction is I've had this interaction with multiple people, some of whom I know don't believe in an individual material messiah. Otherwise, you know, they're not waiting for some person to come liberate us all, but they still refer to Shabbatai as a false messiah. That really boggles my mind that, you know, they just use that sort of shorthand that we're all used to hearing about Shabbatai, even though in other cases, they don't necessarily believe in a true messiah, only false ones. Right, right. I think, yeah, what you're saying sort of is they seem to still retain this idea that it's their job to judge real messiah from false messiah. And mm -hmm. put Sabatai in the second category, rather right. than just sort of putting that baggage down and saying, we're not thinking in terms of a person as a messiah. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And I think that, you know, sort of like Michael was saying, being Jewish is complicated, no matter who you are and where you are. And you have to sort of be aware of how you're being perceived and how you kind of fit into the world among Gentiles mm -hmm. and all kinds of people. And... You can say, well, certain people are very progressive or reformed in their understanding of Judaism. But one element of that, I think, very often is trying to kind of package Judaism in a way that makes it very acceptable and non-threatening mm -hmm. to outsiders and trying to kind of expunge things that seem superstitious or fanatical or backwards. Sabatai can like fall right onto that sensitive spot, I think, of like, this seems like something that Jews as kind of evolved and enlightened people who belong to this very enlightened religion shouldn't be embracing the idea that there's like a savior figure with some special connection to, to the heavens. And so it kind of pushes that button that superficially it might seem like we should just shouldn't care about, but that actually I think all Jews kind of are sensitive to in their different ways. I think something that's interesting about our reactions to Shabbatai today, and even in the immediate aftermath of Shabbatai's conversion, is it really feels like a sort of be careful what you wish for situation in that I think a lot of people throughout history 
have been interested in a renewal of Judaism and something mm-hmm. that sort of breaks out of the old shell and brings us a new and invigorated Judaism. And a lot of people have tried to do that and not been successful. And I think Shabbatai and Nathan were incredibly, probably the most successful example of that kind of phenomenon. And we still resent them for it. You know, Sholem said in, in his book about Kabbalah that it's important for us to remember that all true mystics see themselves as breaking the system for the purpose of the system itself. In other words, they don't see themselves as outside Judaism, but rather so committed to Judaism that they have to transform it, which is, mm-hmm. you know, the Shabbatian ethos to a T. And yet we look back on that transformation and we are uncomfortable with it still, which is interesting because I feel like we're still asking for that same kind of phenomenon to happen today. And I wonder how we will react if we get it. You know, in some ways, what you were saying reminds me actually a little bit about the range of Jews reactions to Bernie Sanders running for president. Hmm. I mean, I think it's relevant. My friend Lex, I recently heard talking about sort of there's two kinds of Judaism, the universal elements, sort of like social justice and all of those values and the particularist elements like going to synagogue. And there are Jews like Ossoff, the recently elected guy from Georgia who goes to synagogue and he attempts to embody social justice. And then there are Jews like Bernie who don't necessarily embody the particular aspects of Judaism, but are clearly Jewish and read as Jewish and embody the universal aspects of Judaism. And that's part of the reason why we struggle with Bernie as a Jewish character. Yeah, I think I think there's a lot of baggage that comes up when people look at Bernie Sanders and respond to him. Another sort of significant element that came up is a lot of people, especially a lot of older Jews who are wonderful and we love them, but there were a lot of older Jews who sort of saw Sanders getting far along the path towards becoming president, like much farther than they expected. And their reaction was anxiety, was a feeling mm-hmm. of of apprehension of what if it goes poorly? What if there's a backlash? There was a lot of people talking about, and, and younger people too, saying, oh, but what if he does become president? And then there's like a an anti-Semitic backlash. Mm-hmm. And I think that a lot of people, you know, they have to have this kind of constant internal negotiation of like, should we be visible and put ourselves forward and be seen as Jews? Or should we kind of play it safe? You know, and I remember even my, my grandparents and my great aunt saying, you know, when we were growing up, we were told don't make waves. You know, you wouldn't do something like go to school wearing a Magen David because that that mm-hmm. might make waves. And I think there's a lot of that still kind of ambivalence and like internal debate about is it safe? You know, is it wise and is it safe to kind of come out there on the world scene and be seen as Jews and sort of assert yourselves as Jews? And what is the right way to do that? So I think that the whole idea of a messiah and of Sabbatai kind of pulls on those conflicting feelings, too, of like, it's almost a little embarrassing to even talk about the idea of messiah at all. The idea Mm -hmm. that there will be like a leader of the Jews who will change the world, you know, in one way or another. To make a a mild pivot, what I wish were the case, how I wish we responded to Shabbatai (laughs) instead, which I'm curious to hear what you all think about it. But I don't necessarily want to live in a world where everyone has accepted Shabbatai as the Messiah. But I would like to live in a world where we have been like that sort of attitude, that sort of like willingness to challenge 
foundational aspects of what we think of as Judaism, that's like a value that we want to cultivate. And we see Shabbatai as like a model of that rather than sort of like a shameful thing we have to sweep under the rug. Something I was I was thinking about as I was getting ready for this episode in Paul Macheco's book, he talks about how something that Sholem sort of missed is that the Shabbatian movement, and especially the Shabbatian movement after Shabbatai's conversion, didn't just partake in other faiths because of the whole redeeming of the vessels going into filth, but in actuality, mixing faiths and mixing rituals was a, a specific value of the movement for its own sake, not just necessarily for like redemption of the impure. I don't know what to make of this, but I think in a certain stream of sort of renewal slash reconstructionist Judaism, people are very interested in allowing Judaism to be informed by other faiths and having a more ecumenical relationship with other faiths than we do maybe in the, for instance, the Orthodox world. And just the difference between those two viewpoints is kind of interesting that our modern Judaism is sort of starting to become open to the idea of mixture by happenstance. And a couple hundred years ago, we had something even more radical than that, which was like mixture by intention or potentially more radical. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that you're right that that's like a big, big question mark and a big sort of dividing line in how people have interpreted the Sabbatites v. episode. Sholem, he's very concerned to emphasize that this was a Jewish movement and that you cannot simply attribute it to outside influence, especially outside influence from Christianity, which I think is what a lot of people, it's kind of their initial impulse. And then when it comes to the later movement, you know, after Sabatai died, he doesn't say nearly as much about it. He kind of leaves it hanging out there, very ambiguous. He does point out that there was a bit of a divergence that you can already see within Shabbatai's lifetime, where he and Nathan of Gaza started to think of things differently. Nathan adhered to this line that the Gentile world is impure, and that you only enter into it really in order to destroy it or dismantle it and save the good sparks that are redeemable. Whereas Sabatai was taking more of a kind of, you could say, maybe a middle road path of saying, well, no, maybe there is something to be gained here. Maybe it's not just a world of impurity and that we should, it is sort of, in a sense, ideal to mix. You know, it's not just a ploy, right? It's not just a mm -hmm. tactic for trying to defeat the Gentiles. It's something that's positively good and spiritually uplifting to bring people of different faiths together and kind of break the boundaries. Sholem doesn't really get deeply into that. And I think maybe he kind of stays away from it because he specifically does not want to feed into the perception that the Sabbatean movement is just like an intrusion of outside non-Jewish influence into Judaism. He really thinks it's a Jewish phenomenon. So it's very complicated. And I think every generation is going to have kind of different biases and different pushes and pulls of what they find appealing and how they're going to understand it. But I think what you're saying sort of is precisely the sort of things that might have made Jews in the 60s or 70s find Sabatai dangerous and toxic might be the exact same things that present-day Jews today might find more interesting and, and promising. 
about the Sabbatai movement. Right. I want to move towards a world where Jews who are looking to shake things up are looking back on Shabbatai as like a sort of ancestor in that path, not as sort of like the enemy of that progress. Sort of thinking of the way Michael likes to do, thinking of alternate histories and situations, I was thinking, how upset would we be if today, you know, just one of our Jewish friends converted to Islam? I think we, as progressive people, would generally be sort of like supportive and, you know, want to embrace that faith journey for them. And if we see someone talking about that as a betrayal, I think we would all find that kind of abhorrent to view conversion away from Judaism that way. So it's interesting that we treat Shabbatai's conversion, you know, we have all these assumptions about its sincerity and things like that. That's a really interesting scenario, I think, because I think that, you know, we all sort of think about faith choices differently now. And maybe it comes from a place of somewhat greater security, that we would be able to be more accepting and supportive of a Jew choosing another religion. At the same time, I also think that different people would react differently about, let's say, a Jew choosing to convert to Islam as opposed to Christianity. Mm-hmm. You know, there are different kind of feelings and emotions caught up in that, mm-hmm. and different people would maybe be more supportive of one or the other. And I think that that's really interesting, too, because so much of like the emotion, I think, around the Sabatai movement involves this question of was it somehow like crypto-Christian or was it imitating Christianity? When in fact, Sabatai was from Turkey and he had more connections with Muslims and he converted to Islam, not to Christianity. It's almost like we just kind of drop that out of the picture. There's, I've never seen much discussion of what about the Islamic influence on the Sabatai movement and on his thinking or Nathan's thinking. It's always sort of fraught and caught up in this question of Christianity. I guess it just reflects kind of like where are our issues and our hangups, right? Right, right. I mean, I think this connects to another one of those. I mean, this is really courting controversy on the podcast, but another one of those areas where even progressive Jews become intensely conservative is the area of Christianity. You know, I I heard a friend on a different podcast recently say something like belief in Jesus Christ as a Messiah is like a absolute disqualifier for also being Jewish. Like those two things can't coexist. And just factually, that's not true. And also like, yeah, we're just so, so much less open to the interplay of beliefs with Christianity. And I mean, with good material historical reason, but it it also, I think, sort of bothers me. Yeah, It bothers me. I don't I don't want to dive into it too much because I think the Shabbatai series is uh, controversial enough. Right. But right. <laughs> <laughs> it yeah. is like Shabbatai is sort of a nexus of all the different things that Jews tend to react Absolutely. conservatively to regardless of our normal beliefs. Yeah, it pushes all of these buttons. And I think something very clarifying and revealing, both that Gershom Sholem talks about and some other later historians who have worked on kind of the whole 17th century world and all the religious ferment that was going on. One of the reasons that Kabbalah and mystical thinking could really help a lot of people and appeal to a lot of people was that it offered a different way of thinking about Maranos, people who had been Jewish and had been forced to convert or chosen to convert 
but who had maintained some loyalty, still some secret tie to Judaism, or their descendants who maintained a Jewish identity even as they were outwardly Christian. There was this very common situation. If you were Sephardic Jewish in Amsterdam or Hamburg or Italy or wherever, and you know you have relations in Spain and Portugal who have betrayed the faith, you know, who have gone over and been baptized and become Christian, or you have ancestors, you have grandparents and great-grandparents who apostatized and became Christian. What do you do if your rabbi says, well, they're just gone, they have no place, their souls are lost, they have no place in Olam Haba, they have just committed the ultimate sin? Well, you know, (laughs) that's not very spiritually satisfying. You want some way to say, no, they're still good there, I'm still connected to them, they're still part of Israel. And there's still something spiritually good, even if outwardly you have gone over to another religion. Mm -hmm. So that sort of, I think, fuels and helps to clarify what was so important about Kabbalah to so many people at that time and how that then helped to pave the way, I think, for Sabbatai Tzvi and this idea that there could be an apostate messiah, you know, someone that could still be saving the Jews and saving Gentiles too while sort of living in this weird in-between space between Judaism and another religion. Mm -hmm. Michael, what are you thinking about? I've been thinking about something you said to me a long time ago. Uh Uh-oh, it was probably foolish. You need to be able to understand the arguments in the Talmud that you don't agree with and the ones that didn't win out, as well as you understand the ones that did win out. Mm -hmm. I think most people who study Talmud aren't up in arms about those arguments, yet we are kind of up in arms about the argument that is quote-unquote wrong, that is the Sabbatean (laughs) movement. Hmm. Yeah. We're able to see it on the micro level, that it's beneficial to building on the Katamari, what was it called, the Katamari The Katamari Damacy, big rolled up ball of stuff. It's beneficial to the Katamari Damacy for us to understand the dissenting views, and it helps shape the Jewish mythology that we're all invested in for various reasons. And I think Mm -hmm. it's equally important to understand the dissenting opinions of these other groups that are Jewish groups. Right. I mean, just one example of a way in which I think Shabbatianism has influenced our modern Judaism in like a million thousand ways we don't give it credit for. But one thing that's just been occurring to me sitting here and Maybe this is a spurious thread to draw, but I think that the expulsion from Spain and Shabbatai, they all sort of led to the Haskalah and Jews sort of embracing this Kantian idea of culture, that we are bearers of Jewish culture, not just part of a Jewish people. And you can see that at play, right? With the conversos, you're starting to have the bifurcation of faith and peoplehood. It's starting to split apart. And then with Shabbatai, it's, that split is getting even bigger. So that by the time we get to the Haskalah, the Enlightenment, which is really not that long after the Shabbatean phenomenon, we're sort of ready for that kind of reform uh, that maybe would have been unthinkable before 1492. And that idea is fundamental to how we think about Judaism today. I think it's a really good and really big question. You know, there is a connection here. And I think you probably have gone further than I have in puzzling out how those things connect and how one paves the way for the other. But I think that reading about Sabbatai, there are certain things that come across, like, you know, for one thing, just the the incredible Jewish unity, like how all these different Jews and all these different places had similar responses and like all got on the same page. 
And another is sort of from that, the sense that something good or exciting or promising happened here, even if it didn't fully reach realization, even even if it didn't fully reach a satisfying result. Sholem himself even kind of briefly hints at this, like he doesn't really want to get into it. But like at the very end, he briefly says, Nathan and Sabatai offered vision, but they couldn't translate that vision to realization, Mm -hmm. which I think maybe is as far as he felt comfortable in going in sort of saying what that movement had to offer. Right. I mean, who among us could translate that vision into realization? (laughs) You know, it's it's pretty unreasonable to expect that. Yeah. It's like you have to be, you know, the genuine Messiah or like really, really have your shit figured out really well Mm -hmm. (laughs) to be able to deliver like some kind of Jewish emancipation emancipation kind of along the lines of what you're saying like Haskalah was sort of saying well here is this way of understanding Jewish emancipation that we can realize if we think of ourselves as a people with a culture which maybe in a way is kind of similar to what people had witnessed in the Sabatai movement that like we are acting together as a people with a place on the world stage I think there's a connection. Justice Brandeis, who was the first Jew on the Supreme Court, he is descended from Jews who were in the Frankish movement. Like a very radical offshoot. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think there is a connection there between the difference between being culturally Jewish and being legally bound to the halakha. And I think it's interesting that someone descended from that line is, is one of the people who embraces, you know, faith in the Constitution of the United States, which is different from faith in halakha. You could make... The case, in fact, that Shabbatai did deliver on their vision by way of the Haskalah. Yeah, I yeah. I th- you could, you could. I think that <laughs> <laughs> I'm sort of, I'm cautious about it. I'm cautious about it, though, because I think that also there are things that the Sabatai movement kind of put forward that really are not realized and still have to be like reflected on. I think when you read in detail about Nathan and Shabbatai and, and some of their followers, people who were inspired by them, there's this sense that they took halacha and they took the Torah very seriously. They were very passionate about it at the same time that they believed that our relationship with the Torah and halacha was not fixed, that Mm -hmm. it was contingent on the sort of arrangement, you know, on the, the time, the dispensation that you're in, and that that can change, right? That That you have to relate to the Torah differently depending on the sort of spiritual and historical moment that you're in. It's very interesting that he was, Sabatai was very intentional, you know, like when he would say, blessed are you, Adonai, who commands that which is forbidden. It's like he's he's still keeping up like the form and the sound and the ritual at the same time that he's turning things upside down and saying now the opposite is commanded. I think it drew on many people's feelings that there was sort of something more going on. There was something more to Judaism and more to Torah than just we live by the mitzvot. There was sort of a new, you know, a new age, obviously, but like a new mm-hmm. relationship was possible as well that was also spiritual and that was also just as holy in its way as the known traditional dispensation. Talking specifically about that famous bracha of Shabbatai brings me to something else that I was excited to talk about, which is this primary source that we have that I that I found and I'm other people have other places in my 
Shabbatian heresy book called I Came This Day Unto the Fountain, which is a little writing by um, Ibeschutz. Jacob Ibeschutz, I think. Let me Google that before I say the wrong first name. Because this one of the things that's interesting about this person and interesting about this writing is that this is a person who was known to be a Shabbatian and yet is also still considered an important scholar in modern Orthodox text study, which is a sort of rare phenomena. Jonathan, Jonathan Ibeschutz. So I came to say upon a fountain is sort of this wild epistle that this guy wrote, and it is sort of exploring the Kabbalistic underpinnings of the Shabbatian movements in these graphic sexual images like seed everywhere like Hashem with like a permanently erect penis and the Shekhinah is like crying out to get fucked and um, (laughs) it was very it was very popular in its time and in fact it specifically towards the end refers to the Davidic Messiah which I should believed was Shabbatai as homosexually receiving the divine phallus in our third episode next week, we're going to talk with my friends Daph and Binya specifically about gender transness and queerness in the Shabbatian movement. But that is also a way in which Shabbatai is connected to specifically to the theme of our podcast, Queer Judaism. There was a lot of play with gender roles, a lot of play with sexuality, and specifically a lot of uh, gay stuff, a lot of gay stuff surrounding Shabbatai themselves. You know, it is it is one of those things that failed to be fully realized. We didn't, unfortunately, we didn't have a homosexual Jewish revolution in the 1600s, <laughs> which would have been cool. Gotta, gotta work on that. And something that I didn't mention specifically that I thought of, I should mention, when I was talking about the event of the movement is Shabbatai was very insistent that both women and men should go on the bima and lead prayers and read from the Torah. You know, that was one of the major barriers he wanted to eliminate, the gender barrier in prayer and worship. You know, some people cynically said, oh, well, he just did that in order to win over the women, (laughs) which is (laughs) like, well, okay, you know, anything could be politically strategic. But clearly, you know, women stepped forward, women prophesied, uh, women led prayer and worship, you know, far fewer women were literate than men. So we don't have as much documentation. But there were women who did, I think, very symbolically interesting things, kind of similar to Shabbatai himself. Like there was a rabbi from Budapest who reported that when he was young in Budapest during the movement, he remembered women going out and laying out blankets and cloths and saying, we're going to wrestle demons. And they would reach into the air and catch like invisible demons, slay them. Hell yeah. With blood, like blood dripping down onto these cloths, showing that they're killing the demons. And then they would say, now that we've killed some demons, we can reach paradise. Do you want the smell of paradise? And they would offer to people their hands, and there would be this beautiful, fragrant odor, which they believed to be the fragrance of paradise. And this was one of the same things that people said early on about Shabbatai, that we know he's the Messiah because we can smell the oil, the oil of anointing Mm. that marks him out as king. And there's this sense that like there's a whole other sensory side to Jewish spirituality, to images Mm -hmm. and bodily movement and smells that is also authoritative in its way too. And that people can have access to that, and particularly women, not exclusively, but particularly women, could sort of access that other side of Judaism that is not just textual. 
Wow. One other note on that theme is in the later Sabbatean movement after he himself was dead, you know, this theology continued to develop. Already in Sabbatai's time, there were some people who taught that there would be two messiahs, that there had to be mm-hmm. sort of like a military political messiah and a spiritual messiah. And then some Sabbateans then taught that, in fact, there had to be three, that there were sort of three aspects of God one of which is the Shekhinah, which is female. And so there would have to be a female Messiah to Mm. represent that sort of final achievement of redeeming the Shekhinah from exile and bringing her back to the Jews. And then they fuse together into a giant robot and fight. That is all sexes and genders (laughs) at once. All right. Wow. Okay. We got fighting giant robot messiahs we got a little a taste of some gender stuff for next week and some perspectives on how we make sense of the shabbatian movement in modern judaism today wow good work team good work wow wow listeners i hope you enjoyed this episode this romp samuel thank you for coming on the show again Thank you for asking me. It's very fun. Listeners, give us a call or a text on the Talmud hotline at 401-484-1619, or you can ask us a question anonymously on our website at chaihowareyou.com. Finally, please join our Patreon at patreon.com slash Cordova so that you can continue to support us in producing this delicious, explicit content. And we will see you next week for Gender Trouble in the Shabbatian Movement. Okay. Shavuot Tov. Shavuot Tov. Shavuot Tov. Thank <laughs> you.